Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Susan Windham. I'm a journalist and writer, and I'm very pleased to be in conversation today with Emily Brugman and Kari Gislason about their new novels, The Islands and The Sorrow Stone. Both novels draw on traditions from Nordic countries. Both tell dramatic, atmospheric and beautifully written stories of migration, family, land and sea, with many likenesses, even though they're set a thousand years apart. Before we start, I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians and storytellers of the land we're meeting on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Kari Gislason was born in Iceland and moved to Australia when he was a child. As an academic in Brisbane, he lectures in creative writing at Queensland University of Technology, and as a writer, he has immersed himself in his Icelandic heritage. His first book in 2011, The Promise of Iceland, was a non-fiction account of his return there. In 2015, he published a novel, The Ashburner, and in 2017, he co-authored with the ABC's Richard Feidler, Sagaland, the Island of Stories at the Edge of the World, which won the Indie Book Award for nonfiction. His new novel, The Sorrow Stone, retells one of those sagas from the perspective of a young woman. Emily Brugman has made a stellar beginning to her career as an author with her novel, The Islands, based on the lives of her Finnish grandparents on the Abrolhos Islands off Western Australia. Emily grew up on the New South Wales far south coast and lives in the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales, so she knows a lot about water, (laughs) far too much at the moment. She's a surfer and she's published stories often about surfing in the ocean in magazines, literary journals and anthologies. She's also been an editor, a bookseller, a library assistant, very much immersed in the book world, and she's now program manager at Byron Bay Writers' Festival. Um, I'm going to start by giving the audience a taste of your books. And Kari, would you tell us what The Sorrow Stone is about briefly and give us a short reading? Uh, Yeah, sure. Hello, everyone. Um, The Sorrow Stone is a book set in the 9th and 10th centuries in Iceland. And it's the story of a young woman who has moved uh, to Iceland from Norway, Uh, her family has had to flee Norway after troubles. And it's the story of her relationship with her two brothers um, and how she manages that relationship with a a quite possessive brother when she falls in love herself uh, and marries uh, and and falls pregnant. Uh, And the section I'm going to read uh, is from the opening of the book. um, And the book starts with a a kind of terrible deed. Um, Disa the main character in the story, has stabbed a man uh, in the leg and she has to grab her son and run out into the the fields uh, near their home. Did you want me to read now? Please. No one in the yard. Not yet. The animals are put away in the barns. The dogs are still quiet. They watch but won't stir until they know something's up. They see Sindri halfway inside the door, waiting while I check if it's time to go. I tell him now, shut the door, don't run. The dogs will chase. We've got what we can. I have furs and hardfish and bread. Enough for the rest of the night if we have to spend it outside. And I've got the blade. I can't stand to look at it, but we need it. Sindri has silver and his shield. He's done what he's meant to do, what I've always told him to do if there's trouble. But it would be better if he brought more clothes instead of all that. We'll need to get warm if we're going to survive. Dawn is too far off. The sky is still night light. It shows the clouds building over the mountains. We run through the yard past the barns onto the track along the lake. I turn around to see the shadow of the hill and its face of uneven rocks. A nasty wind behind us. It bites, snatches, pulls and pushes. 
It's full of voices and screams. Sindri trips, and I think he's going to fall, but he props himself up with the shield. The thing is slowing us down. It's going to get us killed. Leave it, I tell him. No, I don't want to, he says. It's no good. It's too heavy. He sighs, no, crying, fear on his cheeks. Maybe we won't get past the farm. Maybe it's too much for him. I hear the dogs. They're excited now. The men have noticed us gone. They've come out. I can't tell if they're behind us or at the stables. I pull at the shield, but Sindri won't let go. Quick, I say. I sound angry, but it's not his fault. I drag him off the track, past the hill to where it steps down to our neighbor's farm. Cow shit everywhere. It gets on our shoes and the hem of my dress on the shield. Sindri hates the mess it's making of the steel, but he knows I'll yell at him if he stops. It's cold, but the soil isn't frozen. The snow is in drifts against the rocks. I use it to wipe the blood from my hands. Now Sindri's the one pulling at me, wanting to go faster, and I'm crying with fear and disgust at the thought of what has happened. I look at the sword and feel sick. I stop and hunch over to let it pass. I try to feel only the moss and the stones under the snow, but the vision won't go away. The blade in his leg, my hand in his blood. I don't know what to do next. I leave the sword in. He screams and clutches at his thigh, but he won't touch the weapon. I pull the sword out and see my hand covered in blood and the man's fists are coming, and then it's the dirt on the floor, and my face on the ground, it's the gravel and the straw. <laughs> Do you want to know what happens next? <laughs> and that, it really takes a lot of the novel, most of the novel, to explain what's happened and why it's happened. And yes. It's very, very tense. Thank you, Kari. Thank you. We'll come back to you, but Emily, um, Please give us your reading and explain where it fits into your novel. Sure. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming. Uh, so my book, The Islands, uh, as Susan said briefly, uh, charts a similar migrant route to the one that my grandparents took. Uh, this book tells the story of the Sari family who migrate to Western Australia from Finland in the late 50s. And they find themselves setting up camp on Little Rat Island, which is a coral atoll uh, on part of the Abrolhos Islands uh, off the coast of Geraldton, where the crayfishing industry is in its infancy. And they set about beginning to build their lives in Australia. Uh, soon they have a daughter named Hilda. And uh, they become kind of enmeshed in the small fishing community that lives out on the islands there during the fishing season. And we follow Onni and Alva um, through most of their lives uh, all the way to when they are old people. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I'm going to read from, I think, chapter four. And... Alva, the young wife of Onnisari, has um, just taken a trip across the sea with her very young baby daughter, Hilda. Um, she has arrived to the surprise of her husband, Onni. Now, Alva stood in the doorway of the camp, looking out at the skewed jetty and the scrappy islands beyond. She had a broom in her hand, and she leaned her weight against its long handle. Hilda lay in a makeshift crib just inside the door, clenching and unclenching her tiny fists. The islands were a poor excuse for a home, thought Alva, as she took in the view of the archipelago. To think that people had looked at them and thought, yes, these should do just fine. She looked about and shook her head in wonder her watery blue eyes giving away her overwhelming delight for how glad she was to be here. 
We feel like strangers in that big, hot, dusty country, Petra had said, when Alva told her about the terror of birth and those quiet, solitary weeks spent in Geraldton. But these islands, these we can make our own. Alva smiled, feeling the sun crisp and warm on her bare arms. She was as happy as she would ever be. Then, typically, her Aunt Ita's old proverb intruded. Itku pitkasta ilosta. Cry after a long happiness. She swept her superstitions away, bringing the broom across the timber floor and boldly pushing the dust out the door. Quietly, Alva crooned a lullaby. Do, 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 pakiruva, mista hilda tiesi tula. Roll, roll, rolled cigarettes. Where did Hilda know to come from? She sang the silly words as much to herself as to her daughter, a bird song for this parallel universe, somewhere between land and water. Beautiful, thank you. <laughs> that gives a taste of so many elements in the story, and both your books are stories of family. <laughs> and I, w I just wanted to take you back to your family backgrounds and where these. Um, stories emerged from, really. Um, maybe, Emily, stay with you. Tell us more about your grandparents and what did you learn of your sort of Finnish heritage? And that, well, let's start with the Abrolhos. I mean, what did you learn about their time on the Abrolhos Islands as you were growing up? Did you know much about it? Well, I always knew the Abrolhos as a, um, a place of significance for my family. Uh, they had fished there from about 1959 to 1972 uh, or three before the family actually sold up, went back to Finland for a little while and then moved again back to Australia, but this time um, to Canberra. And I remember seeing old black and white photographs of the islands and of my family there. And uh, I think just knowing that those island years had been um, very special to all of them. But I had never been there and they had moved away from there long before I was born. Uh, but growing up in a migrant family, I also, there was, there was a language barrier between my grandparents and myself. And so we, while we were kind of close um, because we spent time there with them at their house um, and we went fishing, you know, with my grandfather. I, w I wasn't able to learn um, about, you know, his old stories or, or stories of, of life on the islands directly from him. My finish is kind of um, fairly elementary and while they were both in Australia for such a long time, their English was sort of... Never all, all that good. Partly perhaps because they lived in that little Finnish or yeah, Scandinavian yeah, sort of community for so long. Yeah, yeah and, and were fairly perhaps kind of shy and inward people. Mm. Um, and so I have learnt so much more about um, the islands and life there and also about Finnish people and, and therefore about them and who they were. Um, through the writing of this book. Mm. Um, but, you know, I've, I've asked my, my mum and my aunties um, and, and other people, um, you know, about that time. But there are a bunch of family stories that have made their way into this book. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think, or why did they choose to come from Finland to this little dot in the Indian Ocean? Did they know it was a potentially lucrative Cray fishing place, or how did they end up there? Uh, well, I mean, I don't know for sure, but what I think is that um, they followed word of mouth, basically. And so, um, you know, young um, kind of working class men had travelled to Australia before them, and they had found work in places like 
um, Mount Isa in the mines. Um, some fins ended up going to Lightning Ridge uh, and some went to Western Australia. And before my grandpa um, took up fishing, he was working a small lead mine in Northampton, which is just a little bit north of Geraldton. And so they were looking for um, an economic opportunity mm. uh, in kind of after leaving post-war Europe and they were looking for probably a little bit of an adventure as well. Um, and I think they followed those who had come before and after working in the mine in Northampton, uh, you know, word spread that there was fishing going on mm. near Brolis. Well... I don't know if anyone here has been to the Abrolhos Islands. Who knew anything about the Abrolhos Islands? I didn't. Is it, no? So, yes, have you been there or just... I'm the auntie. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, auntie. <laughs> okay. Good. Um, well, I must say, your book was a revelation to me and it was so exciting to learn about this sliver of Australian history and our connection with Finland that I knew nothing about. I mean, it's a, it really is it's a wonderful story. We'll come back to the novel itself, but first of all, Carrie, you, um, you came here at the age of 10 with your British mother, is that right? And uh, yeah. British-born mother? I, went to, I left Iceland at 10 and went to England and yeah. then came here a few years later. And you didn't know your Icelandic father... No. Uh, yes, I did know him, uh, but his family didn't know me. Um, right. Okay. <laughs> and you came here and sort of lost that connection for a, a long time. So what... Did you feel that you were Icelandic growing up in Australia? Did you feel that connection <laughs> with the place? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, um, when I came to Australia, I was, um, I was really amazed at at how open people were to me uh, and how welcoming uh, Brisbane, in my case, was. Um, I, I arrived with an English accent. And in England, everyone said, if you come to Australia with an English accent, people beat you up straight away. <laughs> um, and that you, <laughs> you will be taken down at school. <clears throat> and so I made a promise to myself to uh, lose my accent in, in two weeks. Um, <laughs> I gave myself two weeks to do that. And then um, once I had actually managed to do that, I, um, I then found out that people liked the accent. <laughs> so, so that was very disappointing at that point. <laughs> Couldn't uh, but, get it back. <laughs> but I guess, um, you know, when I was here, I was sort of turning 15 when I arrived. And uh, I, I think the next year I booked a ticket to, to, ice, you know, right. to go back. And as soon as I turned 17 and finished school, I went back straight away. And that's when I started to, to think about you know, Iceland again. Uh, and in particular, the stories of Iceland, because I was interested in, in storytelling. And, and you know, I was that kid at school who, who loved English and loved poetry and, and, and the language. Uh, and so I was very desperate to get back to my original language at that point. And that's when, I, that's when I started to come across these stories, you know, mm. the stories of medieval Iceland, which I, I hadn't really encountered as a child because I left just before children start to read them. So in Iceland, kids read these medieval tales from about the age of 11. Uh, and they're, they're a bit like Shakespeare, you know, the sort of medicine, the cultural medicine that the kids are made to, to take. Um, and I missed out on that. And so when I went back at, at the age of 18... It was partly, as you say, to, to know my family, mm. but, it, but it was tied up also with, with knowing these stories because mm. I knew how important they were to, to Icelandic people. Um, so many directions I can go in. I, well, look, t give us a, a bit of an overview of these sagas because yeah. it's central to this novel. So, yeah. well, How many are there? Do you, is there a countable number? <laughs> yeah, there's, there, there's hundreds of these stories. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how much you know about the settlement of the North and the Viking world. Um, but if I just assume for a moment that, that we don't know anything, the story is that in, in the ninth century, um, the Viking kings of Norway became more and more powerful. And certain people in Norway didn't like this development you know, the, the centralization of power. And 
In Iceland, the reckoning is that the really good Norwegians, the freedom-loving ones, left, and all the rubbish Norwegians stayed, <laughs> and, and, and the good Norwegians ended up in other parts of Scandinavia, and, and they settled in Iceland. And that was the settlement of Iceland in, in the round 870s. Um, and the first place they settled was, was, was Reykjavik, which means Smoky Bay, because they saw this geothermal steam coming out of the ground. And they were, they were amazed by Iceland, and they set up, and there was quite a fast migration there. You know, by about 60 years later, they think the population was around 50,000 people. And they brought with them um, the Viking world, and perhaps what we sometimes forget about that world was that it was obsessed with poetry and storytelling and memory. You know, this was a culture that loved intricate poetry. The, the skaldic poems of this age are really very, very beautiful uh, poems. And they also told stories about themselves. And, and the most famous of these are the Icelandic sagas that tell the stories of the first people who went to Iceland and settled there and, and did this, you know, really remarkable thing of starting a new, well, restarting their society in a new place, you know. Mm. And these were, these were just families setting up farms in a difficult country uh, and bringing this old world with them. But then quite quickly, you know, getting into fights. Uh, and, and that's where the sagas get really interesting because they're often stories of conflict between these, these settler families. Mm. Yeah, it seems to me the sorrow stone is something between sort of Game of Thrones, Romeo and Juliet, and a bit of, you know, married at first sight or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, with the married at first sight thing, you're probably right because, you, you know, if you met someone that you liked, you might not see them again for another year. Because uh, it was hard to travel between farms, so there was no point waiting. You know, mm. you know. If you, okay, you'll do. <laughs> and I think, I think, you know, marriages and alliances were made quite quickly in this culture. Mm. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll come back to the how you drew this novel out of it. But um, Emily, how did you, when did you start to think that you might want to uh, turn your family history into a novel? Hmm. I think that when I settled on the islands as a kind of um, an interesting setting for the book was uh, a combination of things. I read a book about the Batavia shipwreck and mutiny, which if you don't know the Abrolhos, you may have heard of the Batavia, which went down um, on the Abrolhos Islands in 1629, I think. And there was a kind of um, gruesome mutiny uh, that followed. People had been looking for the ship for a few hundred years when in the 1960s a cray fisherman um, was burying rubbish uh, on the island where he had his fishing camp and he dug up some human bones. And uh, I think together with um, knowing a little bit about the islands and, and my family's migration story and then this kind of very mm, gothic uh, story, it, it kind of gave that setting um, a more kind of complicated, complex and interesting element. Mm. And I remember at that point thinking, hmm, maybe, um, maybe this is where um, a story could be set. But this book, it grew into a novel very slowly. And so when I first started to write, I was um, writing just a few interconnected short stories. And, um, and then over the years, six years in total, I, I slowly started to kind of like um, fill in the world of the novel. Uh, but I think I also became quite interested in this place and time when, uh, when I did find out that there was, in fact, a small Finnish community living on the island of Little Rat. And I wondered, you know, how they got there, as, you know, as, as you just asked me, and, um, and what life was like for them there. Mm. Mm. And then, yeah, you went there and found out more. Okay. Um, 
Uh, you, you've talked about being influenced in that structure of interconnected stories by writers like Thea Astley with her book Drylands and also um, Elizabeth Strout, is that right, with Olive yes. Kitteridge, these books that are kind of, would you call them discontinuous narratives or connected stories? Can yeah, you tell me? or novels in stories. Novels in stories, dis- yeah. How, how did that influence your thinking mm. and writing? Well... What happened was I had started, um, I had five stories that were connected and then I was a little bit stuck for a time when I didn't know where to go with this and and was I writing a book or was I writing a collection of short stories and uh, I think I, I must have read these two books at the perfect time because they gave me kind of the permission to do something that was in between the two. Mm. And uh, I think what they both do so beautifully is um, tell the story of a community uh, through, you know, the, perspe- the perspectives and, the, and, and glimpses into the lives of different people within that community. But um, not so much with Thea Astley's Drylands, but with Olive Kitteridge, she comes back to, to the one family to kind of like ground mm. the book. Mm. And, and so... Yeah, I, I guess after reading reading Olive Kitteridge, you know, I knew that the Sari family could be that anchoring point yeah. for my it, book. It's very much an ensemble novel and through several generations, but you make each person feel real and, and we care about them. It's very cleverly done. It's beautiful. Thanks. Kari, um, how do you... Um, well, well, why did you pick out the saga of Gisli as the the one that you wanted to look at more closely. Mm. And how did the story of Disa come from that? Yeah, so um, of those sagas that are set in Iceland, um, there, there are sort of five or six that are sort of considered the masterpieces of, of early Icelandic literature. And, and the saga of Gisli is one of those. And Gisli, the outlaw... Is, is much loved in Iceland. And, and everybody knows who Gisli is, right? Um, and he is famous partly because he survived as an exile, as an outlaw for 13 years. He was on the run for 13 years and that sort of is considered a great achievement, you know, to, to have survived that long. But while he was an outlaw, he, he also wrote and composed these incredible poems uh, and that's another reason why Icelanders love him so much, because um, in Iceland, really, the sagas are more treasured as works of literature than, say, works of history. You know, they're loved because they're art. Mm-hmm. And this is a country that's obsessed with arts and music and, and storytelling. But Gisli's story has a kind of a certain shape to it. And that shape is that he has to put his life at risk for his sister, twice. And she doesn't give him what he wants back. She doesn't give him the loyalty that he feels he deserves. And he judges her for that. And for that reason, um, you know, Icelanders judged her for that because Mm -hmm. people read along with the story. And I did too when I first read the saga. I just went along with with the logic of the narrative. But when you uh, read this story a few times and maybe, you know, later in life uh, as a a father myself or as someone who has a different perspective, you start to see the cracks in that that tale and the cracks in Geesley's perspective. He judges her very harshly for a decision that she makes, which is really about protecting uh, the man she loved, the man she'd chosen, and, and her unborn child. Um, and she, she has an obligation to them that she puts ahead of her obligation to her brother. And in that society, that was considered the wrong thing to do. You always put your blood relatives first. And so over the years, I just became more and more interested in, in her, in her perspective on this story, because her perspective on the story is, is kind of a side view of it. How She's, much does she appear in there? Is she actually a, a character? Oh yeah, and yeah. and actually in the in the sagas, women always always have a a proper role in these stories. You know, they have agency, they change the course of events, um, and they actually have 
kind of the best lines in the sagas. Uh, the men are often kind of quite driven by action, mm. uh, and the women often have a more interesting, more interesting things to say about what's happening. And she is present in the story, but her perspective isn't isn't very well isn't fully realised for the simple reason that the, the saga isn't focusing on her. Um, but I was interested in what would happen if you did focus on her, and what what how would the story change if you told it from her perspective? It's quite a bold move for a man in Australia in the twenty first century to <laughs> write in the the voice to some extent of the of a, a, a woman from the tenth century, isn't it? Did you feel that this was uh, you know a, a, a terrifying, challenge? Terrifying, yes. Terrifying, <laughs> yes. Well, of, of course. I mean. How ridiculous. <laughs> a a middle-aged man uh, in Australia writing about a 20-year-old woman in Iceland in the year 970. And, and the gaps between me and, and Disa, of course, are immense. Um, you know, these were people who, who were living in a, in a society where violence was not considered a negative thing. Mm. So that's the first thing you have to change your mind about. It's like, oh, so... Violence isn't necessarily wrong, and actually strength is always right in this world. And then a society that's subsisting on, on very basic food and very, very difficult conditions in houses as long as this stage, with maybe 20 people living in them, mm. um, you know, and a fireplace in the middle and people sleeping, sitting upright. Um, and so I was, I was actually very aware of the, the distances between uh, between me and, and Disa and, and including gender. And so my, my sort of approach to that was not to try and imagine that I could somehow magically inhabit her point of view, uh, but rather to focus on the things that she was looking at in her life. And so I, I spent quite a bit of time focusing on objects and possessions as a way of realising her gaze rather than trying to fully inhabit her in a way that I, I didn't really think was realistic. Mm. Um, and so, you know, a couple of examples, you know, when they, when they dug up, you know, the, the Viking graves and so on, you know, they found the most extraordinary things, beautiful treasure, helmets, swords, but also domestic objects. Mm. Um, the Vikings liked to be buried with their combs. Yes. You know, so you don't, that's not necessarily the image you have of a Viking, right? With perfect hair. Um, uh, I know Liam Hemsworth has perfect hair, but, my, I, I, you know, you don't. So, and the other thing they, they found is these toothbrushes, you know, made of ivory, you know, and, and, and antler from deer. You know, so when the Viking was coming at you, you know, flashing a beautiful smile <laughs> and the hair flowing. But what, it, what those objects allow you to do as a writer is perhaps bypass some of those obstacles or gaps and focus on just the things, the tactile reality of your characters. Yes. Yeah. And um, I was talking to Hannah Kent, who wrote Burial Rites, set in Iceland yeah. earlier today, and she said how she admired the way you'd use the same sort of plain, everyday sort of language and storytelling that the sagas themselves are written in. Mm. How did you find that, that right sort of voice? Because it's quite modern storytelling, really, that you've used. Yeah. You used a lot of um, vernac you know, modern vernacular language yes. and so on. Yeah. How did you get that right? I, I was really, well, I'm, I'm nervous about it and I don't know, I'm not really sure I have got it right, but that's exactly what the goal was. So the Icelandic sagas are written in this quite terse, very concise prose that never looks inside the characters' minds or their hearts. And so can a, can a modern reader, will a modern reader accept that? I don't, I don't think so. I think the, the novel demands some interiority and yeah. subjectivity. I mean, that's at, the, that's at the core of the modern novel. But what I didn't want to do was turn these people into modern characters. And a, and a big part of what I think the medieval Icelandic mindset is, is keeping it in. Because you're in this world filled with, with trauma, and so the only thing you can... The, the, one, one form of control is to hold your emotions at bay. And that's very evident in the original sagas. And that I wanted some of that in this book as well. 
that Disa is only going to show us so much, you know, at, a, at such a time that it suits her to show us. Because this is not a culture, that it's not a safe culture to express your emotions. Uh, yeah. And so, yet they're quite gossipy and yeah. quite passionate <laughs> as well. I mean, the, you yeah. show these different sides to them. Well, behind, you know, if you know someone who's very uh, restrained, you know that underneath all that, you know, there's a volcano, you know, about to burst. A good image for yes. Iceland, yeah. yes. <laughs> and that's the, all of these characters, they're feeling things, mm. but there's an aesthetic in the sagas of just now and again, you get a little drop of, it, of, of raw emotion. And when you get it, it's overwhelming because it is so unusual to get to see behind the characters' um, bravery or... or, or what, what is that? It's like a, I, I'm stoicism, you know, yeah. in, in the face of hardship. When you have a culture that's living with hardship, that might sometimes be the, the best way to survive. Mm. But it's not, it's not really what's happening. Yeah. yeah. That is a perfect segue for me to you, Emily, to say that I think my favourite sentence in the islands, and you know what's coming, is an old joke that's quoted in the novel. There once was a Finn who loved his wife so much he almost told her. Yeah. That's, that's great. I love that line as well. And that raises the question of how you've given voice to these rather terse, laconic people who do hold a lot in. I mean, was that hard material for you to work with? It was hard. And, uh, you know, I think that I found it easier to write the younger generations mm. um, because they didn't kind of, they weren't so restrained as Oni and Alva um, might have been. I think that I had to um, think about how somebody who is restrained uh, goes about showing affection, for example. And, you know, I'm sure we all know people like this who um, would prefer uh, to show, show their affection or their love uh, rather than um, tell you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, I mean, obviously I have people in my life like my grandpa who I can, um, who I can kind of look to for inspiration for that. And we see that in the book when, um, you know, Onni does things for his family. Um, that's his way of showing um, his affection and his love, like when he decides to build a sauna for Alva or when he takes apart the esky so that she um, has a floating device to learn to swim yes. as an old woman yes. um, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. As you demonstrated in your reading, um, you remind us often in the novel that they're not English speakers because you give us these occasional lines in Finnish, always accompanied by the English equivalent, um, and the beautiful songs. And um, I, I, I think that's a lovely sort of cultural touch to the whole thing. Um, but and if you'd like to say something on that, but I also just wanted to point out that underlying the sort of structure of your novel is the Finnish epic poem from the 19th century, the uh, Kalevala. And I wondered if you'd just tell us a little bit about what it is and how you used it. Mm, yeah, for sure. So the Kalevala is, it was published in written form, as you say, um, sort of in the, the, the mid-1800s, I think. Uh, but before that, it was, um, it, it was a, an oral, uh, it was passed down through song. And so it is, you know, potentially very old. Right. And uh, it originates in the Karelian region of Finland. Um, and it, it has become kind of like the national epic of the people. And it might be, um, I guess, compared to, you know, some stories in Roman or Greek mythology, we're talking about kind of pagan gods and the creation of the world. Uh, and so in the Kalevala, 
And I didn't know this really until I, I was writing the book and I started looking into the Kalevala and the stories um, that are part of that, that folktale. And uh, in the Kalevala, there is this uh, kind of mythical object that uh, comes, you know, it's woven through the entire um, kind of collection of, of poems and it's called the Sampo. And it's, uh, we don't really know uh, what it looks like, only that it's a, some kind of a, a mill uh, or a machine that grinds flour and salt and money. <laughs> All at the same time? <laughs> yes, it's got um, a few different sides and from each side it, it, it grinds, you know, <laughs> one of these sort of necessary items. And... Um, and so in the folk tales, it is, um, it, it is made, um, it, it's built and put together um, by Ilmarinen, and it's made from the tips of white swan feathers, the milk of greatest virtue, a single grain of barley, and the finest wool of lamb. <laughs> and... In the ancient stories, the Sampo is something that is fought over by the people of the north and the people of the south uh, because it brings prosperity to um, a community and it is eventually lost into the sea. Uh, and, you know, there's potentially infinite readings of the sampo and what it means, but um, I've kind of used it in my book to symbolise that migrant quest for the good life. And Onni uh, in the book kind of contemplates the meaning of the sampo throughout his life. And um, when he first arrives at the islands, and it's not a spoiler because it happens early on, but he has been drawn there because his brother, who has started fishing on the islands before him, uh, has gone missing in a storm. And uh, one of the old Finnish fishermen says to Onni, um, you know, Nalle thought he'd found his sampo out there on the reef. You know, so perhaps the sampo could be the riches that you might bring up, the crayfish that you know, bring about a good and comfortable life. Uh, but Onni kind of continues to think about this and contemplate this um, and comes to eventually um, think that perhaps the sun boy is something a little bit less tangible. Mm. Yes, mm. yes, that's a nice evolution. And, of course, the sea, the ocean is both the source of their riches and of great beauty, but also danger and constant risk and isolation from the mainland and all of that. It's, you create, create quite a lot of tension out of, mm. out of that and, you know, the sort of... Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess I've been writing about the sea um, and its contradictory nature um, for a long time and I guess... You know, I'm not a crayfisher, but I, I have grown up surfing and I've grown up on the coast and I see, um, you know, how it can be this place of, you know, great um, joy and solace and, and all those kinds of things and how, you know, in a, in a moment everything can shift. Yeah. Have you ever had any terrible experiences in the sea? Not really. I just... There was... Um, I remember surfing in, like in a fairly rem sort of a remote beach um, after lots and lots and lots of rain and there had been a recent shark attack at Bondi, I don't know if anyone remembers, and um, we went surfing kind of just down south a little way and I remember I, I, it was big and I didn't make it out and I got washed back onto the sand and then I, I came up and I looked out for my partner and he had just disappeared. And I, um, mm. I got, I kind of leapt to like the worst possible scenario and started running up the beach 
sort of like screaming and crying. I think I'd just been completely spooked. And then I saw him like running around the corner and, oh. and I ran up to him and I'm crying. He's like, what, what? <laughs> yeah, it's your imagination working, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm going to, uh, in a few minutes, if anyone has a question you'd like to ask, um, we've got microphones at both sides at the front and you might think about it and come up soon, but I, I wanted to ask you both about your travels that have fed into your writing, because both books are very atmospheric. Carrie, you've, how many trips have you made back to Iceland now? Um, probably too many, um, actually, yeah, too many to count, but I go back once every couple of years yeah. to Iceland. What is it that draws you back? Uh, I, I feel, uh, when I'm there, I sort of have this feeling of, of, of rightness, I suppose, uh, that I'm in, in some place where I, where I belong fully, mm. like physically. Um, and I did go back for this, for this book. I, I went to where, where Disa and her family move. Uh, it's way up in the north... West, it's, isn't it? Yeah. It's Is in, it an area you hadn't been to before? No, no, I, I actually know that area quite well because uh -huh. um, I lived there for a little while and I taught there uh, some years before. But I went back and um, you can actually rent, you know, cabins everywhere now because of Airbnb. And so I was <laughs> able to, where Disa lived, I was able to get a, a rental that was the old kindergarten in this valley where, where the family settled. And I started uh, just trying to sort of spend as much time each day walking in the area and feeling, I guess, slowing down uh, a little bit in, in, in my life and just sort of uh, absorbing the, the, the landscape. Uh, but in Iceland, um, everybody sort of watches everyone uh, all the time. And so next thing, uh, I'm standing there taking some pictures and I hear the, the tires on the gravel road behind me um, and it's the farmer and he yells out, Hello, Claire, together. You know, what are you doing here? Uh, I said, Oh, nothing. I'm just just taking some pictures. Um, and he said, Are you a, are you a real estate agent? And I said, I said, No, 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 no. I'm, I'm I'm just I'm here to do some research about saga, the saga of Geesley. And then he said, Oh, well, that's okay. Uh, that makes sense. He understood that. Yeah, now he understands. And he said, Have you been up to the top of the valley? And um, and I hadn't. And he he made me walk up all the way to the end of his valley. He said, this is the most beautiful valley in all of Iceland. And he was kind of right. And I went, went all the way up and um, I ended up uh, lying, you know, lying in the, in the grass and, and falling asleep. I was kind of jet lagged. And, and when, when I woke up, I, I did feel like, you know, much, much closer to the story I was trying to tell. Mm -hmm. um, just through that, that, you know, that rep rep repetitive action of walking and, yeah. and, and being closer there. Yeah. Uh, we, th I think I haven't been to Iceland. I th I tend to think of it as lava and and you know bare land and yeah. and um, all of that, volcanoes. Um, but you're describing grasslands and, yeah. and pasture and so on. Can you can you tell us about that landscape? Yeah, I mean there there is there is volcanic a lot of volcanic activity in this. There is a lot of lava fields and rocks, um, but actually in some parts. It is very lush, and the grass is, is almost unbelievably green, you know, in summer. And, and when, the, when the Vikings arrived, they, they thought it was good land. And, and actually, some of the, some of the farmland is, it, you know, there's a, there's a common idea that Iceland was misnamed Iceland, you know, and Greenland should really have been mm. called uh, Iceland, because Iceland is really very, very... Uh, very green and rich in some parts. And that, that's that area where the family settled has these incredibly steep uh, fjords yeah. uh, and valleys. Uh, in, in winter, the sun disappears you know, behind them in November and you don't see it again until, until February. That's how sort of closed in the towns and the villages are. And, and so that creates a kind of atmosphere, I think, for people. The, the, there is this tightness mm. to life there. Um, and that part of Iceland is very connected. You know, everyone's very aware of each other. As you said before about the gossip, you know, this is a, this is a country that, you know, specialises uh, <laughs> specializes in gossip, yeah. And in fact, you say in the novel, or the, the novel says, that, um, um, uh, in fact, I think it's Disa who says that, um, you know, her story has started to become these these rumours, her experience has started yeah. to become these rumours and she knows that they're not 
telling the whole truth. Yeah. It's, it's a very interesting way that you show how the sagas developed from real lives. It's, yeah. I love that. Well, you know, in, in Iceland, genealogy is everything. And, and so yeah. uh, all of the relationships between all, all Icelanders ever are tracked in this database yeah. that, that, that allows you to type in anybody's name from any time to see how you're related to them. Um, and so um, when, when people meet for the first time, less so today, but they always used to say, um, who do you belong to? That was the first thing you asked people. Uh, which family are you part of? And of course, you, you would say, you know, you're from this family and this farm. And this, oh, yes, yeah. So you know. Yeah, I know your family. Yeah. <laughs> you're a bunch of thieves. Have, or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How far back have you tracked your family? I, well, actually, I'm, I can track my family all the way back to Disa. Ah, I'm, a, I'm right. a direct descendant of hers. Okay. And I think it's 27 generations. Um, and you, you can just type in, she's a real person. You just type her name in to this database and it comes up, your, your, your connection to her. I'm going to come back to you, Emily, and ask you about your travels. Let's just take this question here. Thank you very much. Um, first of all, thank you, uh, Emily and Kari, your wonderful and intriguing stories. I've got some home reading to do, obviously, after this one. Um, we've heard that how Kari has actually translated uh, the Icelandic saga into these stories kind of, you know, dawned to me that how about now, Emily, that you've, you know, written your family saga, mm. uh, can we expect something, you know, follow up, a sequel from that book from Ireland, from the Iceland? Good question. I wanted to ask her that <laughs> myself. <laughs> uh, thank you for your question. Um, I haven't kind of embarked on a second book as yet. Uh, I've had some thoughts or ruminations around, yeah, characters within this book whose stories are not complete, um, but I, I'm really not sure at this stage. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. That's good. I've got only one more curious thing. I looked at the, uh, there's this map on the first page of your book. I actually bought it, you know, before this presentation. So um, one of the islands is called Suomisari. And it just sort of dawned to me that, you know, why on earth the Finnish people went to live in a little rat island <laughs> when next to it was actually Suomisaari, which is, mm. you know, island on Finland. And um, so do you know anything about that Suomisaari that, you know, did actually Finnish people live on that island too? Uh, you know, I think it's a very small island that didn't have camps on it. Okay. But it was... Um, you know, I guess it was just claimed um, as uh, Suomisari, um, just to denote the, you know, the presence oh, yes. of, of a lot of Finns there um, on in the Easter group in general yes. in that cluster of islands. And you know, and and there's also an island called Roma, uh, which had a lot of Italian migrants fishing uh -huh. up there. Makes sense. <laughs> Fascinating little microcosms, aren't they? Amazing. Mm. Just tell me, what did you learn about yourself and about your family and, and your novel by going to Finland? You've, you've travelled there more than once? Well, I've travelled to Finland um, twice, not during the writing no. phases of the book, uh, but I did visit... Um, you know, the area that my, my family had come from and we visited my grandmother's um, cottage where she grew up. And um, it, th there's a story in this book um, where we go back to Finland um, to when Alva is a little girl in the winter um, with her old aunt Ita. And... Um, you know, I guess that story in particular was inspired um, partly by that visit um, to that tiny little cottage where she had grown up in Toholampi. Um, and also by a story that uh, her younger brother had told my mum just last year before he passed away about what their childhood had been like. And, um, you know, they were very poor and her mother, her, her mother did die when she was very young and she had an auntie who came to live with them. Um, and, 
but you know it was also a joyous home even though it was so tiny and you know they were they were called Merkilainens. She was a Merkilainen, a cottager. You know it denotes a, a poor girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and one winter, one winter, the family did have to go out and beg um, their fellow villagers for firewood. And so, mm-hmm. together with some of those family stories. Um, you know, and then the experience of going to these places, I guess that helped me to be able to to tell a story and, and yeah. build that fictional world. That contrast between the two places is very powerful and I love the way they bring their Finnish traditions and superstitions to, you know, having saunas and Little Rat Island, <laughs> it seems extraordinary. It's um, very beautifully used. Listen, we're running out of time. Have we... Um, we, we'll take one last question, and I think that's it. Thank you. I'm very interested in the fact that both of you have drawn on history, um, family history, but uh, both elements. But I wonder about the, the tension of getting it right and how do you, to what limit do you fact check? Um, because once it's printed, yeah. <laughs> uh, you're, you're open to, uh, yeah. So I'm interested, you know, where did you draw the line and how did you go about checking those facts? Because it's based on real history. Mm. Do you want to? Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the original work, uh, The Saga of Geestley, is sort of the, the centre and the starting point for my, my story. And what I've done in the Sorrow Stone is take uh, some episodes and and expanded them greatly. Uh, in particular, the opening sections of of the saga. So, you know, there are three or four pages that deal with the Norwegian section of my story, um, which takes about 80 pages in, in my book. So obviously, I've taken some liberties, you know, in imagining uh, how I see the opening of that story. The reason I did that is because I think Disa's story really only makes sense if you really concentrate on her, her, her youth before the family migrated, that that was very instrumental in the later decision she made about her brothers. So I, I, I don't really claim uh, historical accuracy as such. What I would claim um, is, is, a, is, a, is an imaginative reading of, of the original work. I, I have a, I should say, I mean, I, I do have a doctorate in medieval Icelandic and I've studied these works for 20 years. So I am, I am like right in them. Um, and so I hope I haven't made too many errors about the cultural norms and so on. But as to the actual um, inner lives of these characters and how they responded, that is a work of my imagination. Mm. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Mm. Will your book be published in Iceland? Well, well well, I, I, I'll, I'll find out soon, but um, yeah, yeah it, it's, it, I gave it to people in Iceland to read, of course, and um, one of my instructors was the former director of the um, main manuscript institute in Iceland. So I, I got people who, who are well-versed in this saga, and, and Vjestet, who read the book for me, is also the person who, who writes the introduction to the Penguin Classics edition. Oh. And I was very anxious to know what he thought of this work and, and other scholars, because um, I didn't want it to be um, in any way not honouring the original. It's just that it is my version of of the story. Yes. Yeah. And you're not writing an academic work. You're no. You're writing no. a story. Indeed. Yeah. 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 It's creative. Emily, how how do you respond to that question about history? I- uh, well, I'll just try and be quick because we've run out of time. But um, she's such a good. See, she works for a <laughs> while. <laughs> uh, you know, I've tried to uh, locate my story within a timeline of true events, and so you know, it cor- um, events correspond with true events that you know did take place. You know, the the year that the the shipwreck is discovered corresponds you know, in my book. Uh, But, you know, I think all you can do is um, do an an amount of research and then you you do have to 
pull back and say that that's enough, uh, because otherwise it, it might just go on and on and on and on. Um, but I also, you know, I've, I think I've been struggling with a imposter voice around, you know, writing about life on the Abrolhos Islands, having not lived there myself and not being a crayfisher myself. And uh, so... <laughs> they couldn't write a good novel. <laughs> you know, ways uh, to address that is to, um, you know, interview people, to reach out to people, um, old acquaintances um, from that community. And, you know, a lot of people have generously read the work and, and, and you know, let me know when things don't quite ring true. Mm. Well, thank you. Um, please read their beautiful books. They're amazing. And I have been so pleased to have the, have the opportunity to talk to you both. Thank you, Please Susan. thank Emily thank Brookman you, and Kari Gisleson. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel. <laughs>